0: Food is one of the ways that I see people trying to build intimacy, trying to say, okay, you know, let's share things, let's break barriers, let's break bread together.
1: Welcome to Our Food Journey, a podcast by Hormel Foods. I'm Ethan Waters. I'm a journalist who has spent the last couple of decades writing about psychology and culture. So I was very excited to get a chance to talk with Hormel's in-house anthropologist, Tanya Rodriguez. Buying, cooking, and sharing food can tell us a lot about who we are as a people, Tanya studies this world, and it's one that is endlessly complex. There are thousands of food and cooking subcultures defined by place, history, and economics, and it's all constantly evolving and changing. I was curious to learn how Tanya tries to keep track of it all, and what trends she's currently watching. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tanya Rodriguez. Tanya, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thanks, glad to be here.
1: So, anthropologist for a food company, it's not the normal job that you think of an anthropologist having. How did you get to this job and tell us a little more about it?
0: Okay. Um, originally, my intent was to become a professor of anthropology, specifically medical anthropology, looking at the integration of ethnomedicine and biomedicine and how consumers shop for healthcare um, in a contemporary sense and then also looking at a traditional uh, types of, of healing. However, um, during my write-up, I saw a job description for Hormel that they were um, looking for an anthropologist, cultural anthropologist, to study how people choose food, and that seemed very innovative to me, so I went ahead and applied, and lo and behold, an hour later, I got a job interview, and I was on my way to Austin, Minnesota.
1: So that's interesting. So how do you go about doing your work for Hormel? What do you do on a day or weekly basis to... Gather your information.
0: Well, at the beginning, it was kind of uh, <laughs> pioneering things because no one had done the job in the 125 year history of the company. So you're trying to figure out how exactly one does that in a large uh, food manufacturing, you know, for a large food manufacturer. Um, so now we've learned a lot in the years that I've been doing it. And so what we try to do is make sure that my boots are on the ground. I'm in the trenches with the consumers. So a lot of my job is traveling and going going into consumers' homes, I cook with them, I shop with them, I find out how they meal plan, what they do, what's the spirit of their food, um, what is it that they're looking to get out of food just besides sustenance. So I find out a lot about those things through travel. Uh, but I also work really um, diligently and intimately with my team to help do ideations and prototype and so forth to design new concepts for food, either redefine food that we have, re, you know, refurbish it, so to speak, or um, to actually come up with new concepts for food.
1: You ask someone basically like, can I come into your house? Can I go through your pantry? Can I watch you cook dinner? Like, how do you do that and make that feel natural? Or is that is that sort of the process? Like, I'm just going to come and stand in the corner of your kitchen and...
0: Um, that's interesting. So I don't like to be a fly on the wall. Some people are anthropologists that like to be a fly on the wall and just kind of sit back and observe. Um I'm very relational and so I really see it as like making a new friend. And I'm starting to get cues about who they are from their neighborhood, from their home, from what they drive, what bumper stickers they have on their car. I'm downloading data right away about them, and I'm using that to springboard a conversation with us. So I never start talking about food right away. We start talking about hobbies, things they like, their family, and so forth, and then we start talking about food. And food inevitably leads to other stories, and it leads to bigger pictures about what does food really help you do? Well, food helps me show love. Oh, well, I really try to f- cook food quickly because really what I want to do is spend time. So you 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 hear about the dynamics, the different dynamics and the different roles food play because you hear about the larger story of what the consumer is trying to get at. So my job is to facilitate really a friendship. And sometimes it can even be so quick, you know, it's just 10 minutes in a C-store, right? But I see somebody searching, I see them looking for a snack, and I'm watching them and I'm looking at what they put away and what they do take, and then I I approach them and then it's this really rich story about their whole thinking process. And they're like, why? I didn't even realize, you know, this is what I'm doing. But in just a few minutes, we can really build a relationship because I've observed them and then kind of fed back their behavior. And they're like, ah, yes, of course. So um, really, I'm looking to, to make friendships.
1: That, that makes a lot of sense to me. Are families still eating dinners together? You hear trends like families are so busy, you know, dual income households or single parents. Do they still, does food still bring people together in the way it used to?
0: I think it does and it doesn't. So um, the idea of everyone sitting around at the table at the same time doesn't necessarily happen as much. Maybe with small children, families with small children, there's still that ability to control them and to, you know, get them into the same space at the same time. But as you see uh, families with older kids that have activities, different things, um, it's a little bit more sparse. But what I will say is that there's a meal being cooked for everybody. And then people come together at different times sporadically. So like maybe you're eating at the bar. They're, you know, talking to your mom while she's cooking and she's feeding you. And then your brother comes home from baseball and then he takes your place. And then dad and her come and sit down together. So it's a table, but not necessarily the traditional table. But definitely the idea of bringing a family together around nourishment, you know, that idea of I'm cooking for my family still exists.
1: So I'm fascinated with what, what you're learning about the consumer trends out there, particularly in the how the value customer is thinking about their food. Are there trends in the value customer life that you've noticed that surprise you or...
0: Well, I think the interesting trend is that people who do have means are mimicking the value customer. I really think that that's the inter- interesting trend. Um, we have tended to think that the value customer wasn't interested in health per se, but they were doing a lot of from scratch cooking because they couldn't av- afford a lot of the convenience items and so forth. So that's why we see a lot of the fresher foods, a lot of the vegetables, because yes, you know, they're needing to do the more economical, more carb based, starch based foods, but they're looking to brighten their foods with vegetables vegetables, and so forth. And so you see a lot of one-pot meals and things like that, more economical meals, um, meals that can be stretched. But now you see the people with means trying to mimic some of those dishes because they're, they're also looking for high-flavor um, practical foods as well. And so I see them mimicking the, the value consumer in that way.
1: They've they've been doing that for years, though, too. Like, say, for instance, the entire world of barbecue, which we think of as kind of a high-end food now, was about taking the cuts of meat nobody else wanted and putting it through this process that made it totally delicious. So I think you could probably, in any food tradition you can name, from pasta to the use of rice, like... The, va- the value consumer in all those cultures have really driven what we think of as like the, the fundamentals of that culture's cuisine, right?
0: Absolutely. I think that they're, they're really kind of the innovators and pollinators of food, so to speak. They bring all of these ideas to the table quite literally. And so, what I love about them is like, for instance, if you're looking at some more um, Hispanic foods like tripas, right? So, tripas or entrails, uh, people are making tacos with that because it's really cheap and nobody wanted. In trails, but um, several years ago, a lot of the um, food trucks got really interested in tacos and then it became very vogue and very hype. And so tripas went up um, in price quite a bit. And so then the normal people who knew how to cook them and had, you know, really invented the soul to these tacos couldn't afford them anymore. And we've seen the same thing with fajitas and other foods. But I think that that, that um, the longevity of these foods, soul foods, so to speak, really talks about the innovation and the kind of um, tenacious spirit of the value consumer, not only with food, but with everything.
1: Right. It's innovation out of necessity, right? You're trying to find value in the food that you can buy. Right.
0: right what you can afford. And then trying to foster, you know, all the taste you can muster out of that, right? Which usually takes a lot of cooking, a lot of like slow cooking again, to make meat, you know, rough meat tender and those type of things are to build flavors. And, you know, that takes a lot of love. It takes a lot of time to do those things. So um, I really see them as being able to kind of uh, cross-function their food. <laughs> they pull from everywhere and make something unique and delicious.
1: You've cooked with a lot of families. How do you perceive the general skill level of people just in culture in general? Is it are people getting into cooking? Are they getting less skilled at cooking? Are we passing down those traditions in the way that we might have done that in other generations? Or are things getting lost?
0: I think some things are getting lost person to person. So I do see people with basic cooking skills, but um, there's not a whole lot of people with really refined cooking skills, knife skills, or you know how to pair things and that type of thing. But that's that's the common person, right? We're just trying to make good food um, quickly and um, making sure that we nourish our families. But I do think there are a subset of people that are really get into some fancy food like... Um, sous vide cooking and other types of cooking, using cooking in a different way. So you see people using crock pots more, different things, and really trying to innovate with cooking appliances. So I do see some of that happening as well. Um, I do want to mention though with Gen Z, because I think the younger generation coming up is very aware of food, what's in food, How's it produced, who's producing it. And I think they want more of an intimacy with food than generations before. And I think we're going to see them be quite different from millennials, quite different from Gen X in the way that they approach food. And I think that they may start to adopt more cooking skills, but I don't think it's mom and grandma and that type of person teaching them. I think they try to find out a lot of things through media. And so they're getting education you know, for cooking skills in that way, which I think is pretty avant-garde. Millennials were doing that somewhat, but I think this new generation, it's kind of part and parcel to who they are.
1: Can you identify what the trends are that push them that way? I was thinking of of cooking shows, for instance, but I'm not sure if the cooking shows were just a reaction to their interest or were actually driving their interest.
0: Well, the funny thing is, I just recently um, saw a presentation on different generations and Gen Z, they asked them, well, who are the most influential people in your life? And all of their influencers were actually from social media. They weren't people that you or I probably could even identify. And so these are the people that they're looking to. their peers um, who are doing interesting avant garde things with cooking, with makeup, with fashion, and all of these different ways. And they're looking to them to kind of pioneer um, new ways of doing things. So it's not Julia Childs and it's not Rachel Ray and it's not the Oprahs and it's not those kind of people that we could identify. It's this whole new um, kind of organic influencer.
1: And when I think about your job and having to sort of put your finger on trends, and in our day and age, as as you just sort of alluded to, the trends are going in a million different directions. There's just influence, there's cross-cultural influences, there's this entire social media world that is almost so difficult to sort of parse or understand. I wonder how, like... Do you despair some days of like trying to trying to figure this out?
0: <laughs> well, it's it's interesting. I think um, so. I, if I had to identify things, I would talk about risk. I would talk about relationship, and I would talk about personalization. That's how I would kind of group them. I think that right now we're just in a political climate, social political climate that's uneasy for a lot of people. Uh, people feel like they're at risk in general, and they're trying to mitigate that risk. Um, so people are afraid about things like food safety, food waste, food equity, those type of things, in addition to social equity and these other type of issues as well. So you see it reflected um, in general. So people feel safe at home generally, but as they move further and further out, they feel more and more at risk. And for that reason, I think that people are looking to know more about their food, know more about their communities. They're really starting to try to get engaged with what's going on around them. And they're putting more onus on food manufacturers to Tell them more, um, give them more information, and to produce the best that they can, um, you know, given given constructs, right, that they that they have to go through. So I think the risk is that you know in that respect in terms of food. But To supplement this idea of risk is because you feel at risk, people want deep, rich relationships and they're not finding them very easily, not even with their own families sometimes. So they're looking to create that um, in other ways. And food is one of the ways that I see people trying to build intimacy, trying to say, okay, you know, let's share things, let's break barriers, let's break bread together. And they're trying to learn more about diversity and complexity. Um, So... I see food moving in that direction, very global, um, mixology You see it in drinks, too, where people are bringing together things that don't seemingly go together, but um, they try to create new things. And then lastly, the idea of personalization, where they're trying to say, I still want something that's uniquely me, uniquely about me. I want to feel like I'm special amongst the crowd. And they do that with food as well. And so we see people moving into very personalized diets, wanting to know more about how their body functions, like with a microbiome, getting that tested, getting their DNA tested trying to figure out am I, you know, um, lactose intolerant, am I, you know, uh, bad with gluten or whatever it is that they're trying to find out about themselves. So we see them doing that with food, but I think that that's reflective of a larger desire to be special, uh, for, to understand themselves intimately, for other people to understand them in that way.
1: We've certainly seen a lot of uh, interest in food as medicine, food, uh, functional foods. Do you feel that's a trend that you see out there? Do you feel like that's a fad or something that we're going to see from here on out?
0: Well, I think that it's not a trend at all. I think that it's something very old, uh, very ancient. I think that... um, people throughout Mesoamerica, for sure, you know, in my anthropological research have always seen the benefits of food, uh, different functions that they that they provide. Like, for instance, Yerba buena is very popular in Hispanic culture because it calms the stomach. So it's a tea. It's an herb that you make into a tea. So we've known for centuries and centuries, you know, that this, this food functions in this way. And you can go to any culture and they will also have their native herbs and native plants and so forth that are foods, but also have very... Very distinct benefits, And so I think that we're, what we're experiencing today is not a fatter trend, it's actually a reflection of the past. And people are looking at those things and understanding their value and then bringing them to bear today, but in unique ways. So you see like yerba mate, which is, um, again, an herb that was used in a ritualized tea um, in South America, but you see that now Guayaquil company has made it into a ready to drink tea that you can drink, you know, cold and you can pick up at your local local retailer. So they're understanding the benefits of the tea, but they're using it in a different way out of its um, cultural context to some extent.
1: Right. The, one, the things, that functional foods that are really taken off often are the ones that have that reach into another culture. They have an, a way to identify a story into the right. other culture.
0: Yeah, Authenticity. That's what people want. Again, right. back to that idea of relationships, back to that idea of special and personalization. People want things that are good for you, functional, but also authentic.
1: Right. And there's a whole new startup culture in Silicon Valley. They're beginning to go into the lab to create things that are supposed to fulfill all your nutrient needs. I wonder eventually if those lab made products that are supposed to be, you know, provide some sort of specifics or brain health or physical health will actually ever take off in the same way those ones that have the cultural heritage attached to them will.
0: Um, It's interesting. I think that culture moves slowly, and I don't think those things are on the horizon maybe in the next decade, but I definitely see in years to come that they will become much more important simply because of the state of the environment and the pressures that we're seeing you know, being put on the environment with population growth and then also with climate change and so forth, that we might have to seek new ways of um, eating foods that we traditionally loved or looking for new food sources. And so the merging of food and technology, I think, is getting more acute, more rapid. And um, I don't see this completely... Out of the question in terms of um, people's cultural a- adaptation to it I think again necessity is the mother of invention and sometimes uh, we may we may be in a circumstance that we may need to try something new whether it's with alternative meats lab-grown meats uh, plant proteins or things like liquefaction of meals
1: so I'm curious about restaurants uh, in uh, low so- socioeconomic communities are there trends there that you see that you find interesting
0: I think that restaurants are really trying to get families in, right? Everybody's kind of suffering, um, you know, in terms of of losing business to other ways of uh, procuring food. But what I do see happening is a lot of family value specials. So um, places that are in the barrio are usually like, let's say, a fish place. A a fish place will have a family value option that they know the types of families that are coming in to give them that, you know, really good experience and filling experience at a good value. See, the same thing with chicken places, the same thing with taco places, that they're really understanding that there's different size families coming in here and they have like a manager special that will accommodate them all. So I do see that happening more than individualistic, you know, where everybody's ordering their own plate. It's kind of like one dish for everyone um, type of idea that I see happening there in that restaurants.
1: That's lovely. Going back to that uh, issue of food equity what do you, what trends do you see? Are you hopeful about the world of food becoming more equitable in our time or are the trends pointing in a different direction?
0: I think that people are becoming more aware of food inequity. I think that, um, for instance, with food waste, people are becoming aware like, wow, I have excessive consumption and I throw all this food away and they're starving people. And so I should use more of my food. So I think they're becoming more aware in that way. Um, But in the infrastructure of changing inequities, I don't think people are as passionate about. I think they're willing to eat less or eat differently or maybe, you know, have a different package if it's not going to affect someone else's food sources and that type of thing. But people don't typically want to be inconvenienced. Um, What I'm really hopeful about, though, is channels for how people can procure food through Amazon, through other kind of direct shipping, through um, some of the even the meal prep services that are a little pricey now, but getting more affordable, that they can reach people that are actually geographically um, in a food desert and so that you know, food can get to them easier. But I think we're still a long way from understanding the complexity that creates hunger. And we can um, hear a story and feel sorry for that person, but I don't think we're at the place where we wanna change a lot of our inherent behaviors. Not to go hungry, but to really understand that there are people who do not have the same socioeconomic status that you do, and for that reason, they don't have access not just to food, but to healthcare and to a lot of other things. And that's a harder story for the consumer to take.
1: Yeah. When you talk about the value customer, what are we talking about in terms of, um, say, they have a family of four? How much do they have to spend on that dinner for like the lower 10% of the socioeconomic ladder?
0: So the government does establish certain guidelines that talk about what is considered poverty, right? And what you should be spending on a meal. Um, but I can tell, so I don't know those off the top of my head, what I can say and intuitively as a social worker, people are wanting to spend maybe 10 bucks to make dinner. You know, and 10 bucks doesn't go far when you're trying to feed a family of four, especially if you have teenagers, right? You know, everybody's technically an adult. That's hard to feed people on maybe 10 bucks. But I would say that it was usually when you, once you, once you were hitting $10, you really needed to be able to, you know, make a claim to, to the consumer to say, no, really, this is going to stretch or this is going to do something else for your family. Um, they're pretty strapped. I mean, you think about that. You're you know, only talking about two fifty a person. That's not a lot. I've
1: got to say, I really like the idea of your job because, you know, something, we take sort of supermarkets for granted, how we eat food. We all have our patterns of eating food. But the way we do it as a culture is really deep and fascinating, and interesting. There's so many layers to it, and there's so many messages in there, and I just like the idea that you're out there trying to figure it out a little bit at a time. I know that all those issues go to the creation of Vital Cuisine, and like then, which is designed for people going through chemotherapy to bring that the joy of food back to them during this really physically and mentally difficult time. I know you worked on that project as well, right? So that must have been deeply moving to see, to talk to those people about their what they were going through at that time of their life.
0: Absolutely. And just seeing how um, illness affects not just the patient, but the family. And especially if it's a mom who's doing the the majority of the cooking, and now she can't taste as she's cooking, or she can't enjoy what she has cooked with her family. And so there's so many layers that go into illness, you know, and how the person is coping physically, how they're coping emotionally, all with food, just profound stories. You know, I had a foodie who was 31, who had lymphoma, and he was, and they would have these battles in their kitchen, him and his friends, as like iron chef battles, and he had traveled the world collecting wine and just in love with food and now everything tastes metallic to him. So he, he just can't eat anything. And so just giving him another option was really rewarding. And I, I really enjoyed that. But even simple things like a healthier snack, a better for you snack, like our natural choice snack line, even that is something, a win, right? It's helping somebody make a better choice. Like, okay, I'm not doing so well, but I've got that one good thing that I did for myself today. And to me, that's elevating your day. And that's what we want to do at Hormel.
1: I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you have, you, especially we're again up here in Napa Valley. You have a lot of food purists. These ideas of mm-hmm. there's only one way to do it, and you can only have this type. It's got to be this super organic farm to table, which is great. Which is great for if you have the income to do it and you live in Napa Valley, it's fantastic. But then there's this idea of like, what do you know? Everyone has to eat every day, and they have to do it on a budget. And we want to make choices, and both as individuals, but also as a as a company, and to move the needle a little bit towards health, towards value, um, towards a food that brings people together. And you do that incrementally. You don't go all the way to one end and ch- change the system. You do it day by day. And I think we do that as individuals, but I also think that that's what companies like Hormel are trying to do
0: right exactly and i think i mean i saw that with my grandma using spam and eggs right because she didn't feed us an off brand she fed us spam and it was just a little bit of spam you know per kid with you know a, a taco of of spam and eggs but it was that little bit of quality a little bit of zhuzh, a little bit of something better you know so even not just the the health aspects but the quality aspects that you're getting something nice you know i watched a woman make her own homemade chili with rice and some home-cooked beans and some hamburger meat, but she put a can of Hormel chili in there because she said, that's really the flavor I want to achieve, but I don't know how and I can't buy a giant, you know, giant cans of Hormel chili. So I'm putting all these leftovers in here with that can and that's what makes it. And that's powerful for me to think that that to her is elevating her chili to the best. And that's what we want for people to feel like they're getting the best they can get
1: consumers have so much information about the value of food and the health of food and what's good for them what's bad for them different forms of diets but it's just coming at them you know over the internet certainly there's more information than you could possibly handle i'm wondering if that just leads to a general sort of confusion out there or if people are getting good information or bad information what do you think
0: I think there's certainly that top 10% of influencers that know where to find the good information. They know how to filter through all of the bad sources and find the primary sources and the research and so forth. So I think they're defi- they definitely exist. But I think the vast majority of consumers are absolutely inundated with information. And so I think it's really important that we cut through some of them the cacophony of sound, so to speak, of all these voices to really help consumers understand what they need and what's best for them. And so I see some of this confusion around protein. Consumers understand that it's a building block of good nutrition. They're not absolutely sure what it does, but they know it does something good. And then you ask them, well, how much do you need? And they're like, I don't know. How much do your kids need? I'm not sure, but I know a lot. You know, So if it says protein, I'm going to get it. But they don't really understand the complexities of, of the protein or the amount. And so that's something that we can help filter out the noise and give them more credible information so that they know, you know a resource to go to. But you see them do that with even calories, um, you know, some... who are taking care of elderly or sick patients are like I don't know the doctor told me to you know just ply them with calories but you know all they want to eat is milkshakes and I'm not sure that's the right thing and so they get confused about okay I know it's a lot of calories but I know that they need to be meaningful calories and so you see them struggle a lot when you're in interviews to try to make the distinctions.
1: Tanya thanks so much for talking with us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me I enjoyed it.
1: So that about wraps it up for us. Uh, I'm Ethan Waters. I've been talking with Tanya Rodriguez, anthropologist at Hormel Foods. For more information, go to Hormelfoods.com and please join us again next time.